The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 13, Theodore Roosevelt and the Panic of 1907. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Thanks for listening. Um, before we get started, as always, I thank you. Please visit the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can sign up for the email list there. If you're into the social media thing, you can follow me on Twitter at American Hiscast. Um, I have to admit, I finally broke down and created a Facebook group. So you can look us up on Facebook and like our page. And we can have conversations there. You can contact me, all that kind of stuff. So um, there you go. Um, if you would like to help out the show, there are several ways. I'll talk about them in a moment. Um, mostly Patreon, and I appreciate everyone who's joined Patreon. It really does help cover the cost of books and the website and hosting and all of that stuff. So thank you very much. Now, if you would like to help out, there are, as I said, a couple ways you can do so. First, you can enter Amazon through the links on the website. If you go to the resources page, you'll see some of the books that I've used to create the episodes. Click on those links and you'll be taken to Amazon. Any purchases you make that qualify will allow Jeff Bezos to send us a few pennies, and it costs you nothing. So everybody wins. If you would like to have access to the bonus show, 1983, the year the world almost ended, you head over to the website, click on the Patreon button um, over to the right, I believe it is, and for as little as $3 a month, you get access to that series. If you sign up for the $5 a month level, you also get access to the show that I'm going to do at least once a year, perhaps more, if we get enough people that sign up at that level, on a controversial topic. And I'm going to be doing one here pretty soon, so I'll be busting some major myths and hoping to have that episode ready here in a week. All right, so enough of that. Today we are talking about the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt, but of course, first we've got the song of the week, which is on a Sunday afternoon and comes to us courtesy of the Internet Archive. Enjoy.
Theodore Roosevelt, what to say? <laughs> There's so much. Where do we start? Well, he's often considered the first modern president, although I'd say that was Abraham Lincoln, if forced to choose one myself. Some feel he was the first president in American history to use the power of the government to directly help the so-called public interest. Now, how did he do this? Well, first he saw the presidency as, in his words, a bully pulpit to preach his ideas. Second, he supported progressive reform with strong rhetoric, but in reality, he was actually more of a moderate, and some say conservative on some points, than he is uh, credited as having been. In other words, some would say he's a middle-of-the-road politician. Often, when facing congressional opposition, he bypassed Congress. Now, in that, he was very much like Andrew Jackson, and we might even say very much like President Obama or Trump. And whether we like it or not, Roosevelt is enormously popular amongst a large percentage of Americans. Now, one way which I can't deny is that he was very much like a modern president in that he was the first one to play a significant role in world affairs. This is something we'll discuss in a later episode, but he was certainly interested in world affairs, unlike all of his predecessors. Roosevelt was famous for his square deal. Many modern presidents, when running for office, or immediately after taking office, come up with a catchy phrase for their legislative program. Probably the most famous of all was Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. But, as far as I can tell, the first one to come up with this idea was TR. Now, the square deal was based on the three C's. These were corporate regulation, consumer protection, and conservation of natural, uh, natural resources. So first, let's take a look at corporate regulation. In 1902, you had the anthracite coal strike. Now remember, at this point, coal was an extremely important resource, as hard coal was used to heat homes. 140,000 workers of the United Mine Workers, um, the UMW, in the Union and Coal Mines in Pennsylvania went on strike. The UMW demanded a 20% pay increase, reduction from the work of the workday from 10 hours to 9 hours, the fair weighing of coal, and better safety conditions. Now, let's face it, mining is dangerous work. Now, George Baer, the president of the company, assumed the public would oppose the miners and thus refused to arbitrate or negotiate. Baer demanded Roosevelt prosecute union leaders for violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act, as President Cleveland had done in the case with the Pullman strike of 1894. Now instead, Roosevelt threatened to seize the mines and operate them with federal troops if the owners refused to compromise. This action by TR was unprecedented in American history. Roosevelt's reasoning was that the public at large was in jeopardy of having no coal during the winter, so it was his duty to intervene. In the end, the mine owners consented to arbitration. The miners received a 10% increase to their pay and a nine-hour workday. Owners were given assurances that the UMW would not be officially recognized. Owners were also allowed to increase the price of coal by 10%. Now, another example of Roosevelt trying to protect consumers was the creation of the Department of Commerce and Labor. It was created in 1903 to settle disputes between capital and labor. But within a decade, it was split into two separate departments. Within the department was the Bureau of Corporations. Its mandate was to monitor businesses in interstate commerce. As the story goes, it helped break monopolies and pave the way for the era of trust busting. Now, a third major aspect of TR's corporate regulation program was when, in 1902, he attacked the Northern Securities Company. This holding company um, was owned by J.P. Morgan and James G. Hill. It achieved a monopoly on railroads in the Northwest. The Supreme Court upheld Roosevelt's antitrust suit to dissolve it in 1904. Roosevelt was now seen as the trust buster. 
Then in 1905, the court declared the beef trust is illegal. Sugar, fertilizer, and harvester trusts all came to uh, be regulated by antitrust legislation as well. Eventually, TR went after DuPont, Standard Oil, and the American Tobacco Company. Now, the fourth aspect of Roosevelt's corporate regulation was the Hepburn Act of 1906. It expanded the power of the Interstate Commerce Commission, which was created in 19, uh, 1887. This law restricted the railroad's ability to give free passes, what some termed bribery. The ICC could nullify existing rates and stipulate maximum rates if necessary. Furthermore, the act stipulated that there were good and bad trusts. The bad trusts should be prosecuted, but the good trusts were seen as healthy for the economy. Finally, let's look at Roosevelt the Trust Buster. His reputation was inflated as Roosevelt exaggerated his antitrust activities to gain political popularity. Wait a moment, Warswick. Are you saying a politician would over-exaggerate his importance? No way! Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. His actions in reality were more symbolic to prove government, not private business, was in control. The threat of dissolution might make business more open to government regulation. Instead, what happened, and what always happens, is that in the end, these laws are often used to defend the powerful and harm the weak. Sure, perhaps breaking up Standard Oil was a good thing, something I'm not sure I agree with, but okay. But in the end, large businesses always have the money to lobby. And by concentrating such power in one central government, you've just made it far easier for them and their lobbying efforts. It's one-stop shopping for them. Further, TR himself did not consider wholesale trust-busting economically sound policy. He realized that combination and integration was a common practice in the business world. In his mind, big businesses were not necessarily bad, and there was no reason to punish success. You might find it ironic, but in reality, trusts were healthier at the end of Theodore Roosevelt's presidency than they had been before, albeit more tame due to regulation. In the end, believe it or not, President Taft busted more trust than Roosevelt. Now, just as an aside, in 1607, TR gave his blessing for J.P. Morgan's plan to have U.S. Steel absorb the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company without fear of antitrust reprisals. When Taft launched a suit against Morgan's U.S. Steel Corporation in 1911, Roosevelt was furious. Now, another aspect of Roosevelt's presidency was consumer protection. Early in the 20th century, there was an impulse for meat protection brought about by two things. First, European markets threatened to ban American meat since some meat from small packing houses was found to be tainted. Second, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle was published in 1906. Now, the public was sickened by his description of unsanitary food products. He detailed numerous accounts of filth, disease, and putrefaction in Chicago's damp and ill-ventilated slaughterhouses. In response, TR appointed a special investigating commission whose report almost outdid Sinclair's novel. This led to the Meat Inspection Act of 1906. Uh, induced by Roosevelt, Congress passed the bill. Meat prepared to be shipped over state lines would now be subject to federal inspection throughout the meat-making process. Although the largest packers resisted certain features of the, the act, they accepted it as a means to drive out smaller businesses. Surprise, surprise. Packers also received the government's seal of approval on their exports. Now, I misspoke earlier when I said two things. A third was the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. It prevented the adulteration and mislabeling of foods and drugs. Hitherto, many patent medicines were laced with alcohol, while labels misrepresented the contents of their containers. The law was a first step in the direction of nutritional labels that are still required on all packaging, um, packaged foods sold today. 
Conservation was another aspect of the Roosevelt program. Now, I would say this is probably his most lasting legacy. Prior to 1900, conservation did exist. The continued growth of the logging and mining industries after the Civil War prompted the growth of a conservation movement to protect wilderness areas. Some notable examples of conservation include the creation of Yellowstone as the nation's first national park in 1872 and the designation of Yosemite as a national park in 1890. John Muir, the most influential conservationist in American history, led the effort to protect Yosemite, and later he co-founded the Sierra Club in 1892. The Sierra Club worked initially to create Glacier and Rainier National Parks, as well as preserving California's coastal redwoods. Now, if I had to pick, I'd say the Sierra Club and the creation of Yosemite National Park are Muir's two lasting achievements. Now, there was a struggle between the idea of resource use and preservation, and this is best exemplified by what is known as the Hetchy Valley issue in the 1910s and 20s. At issue here was the idea of damming the Toulon River, I hope I said that right, probably didn't, um, which ran through the valley. The Sierra Club fought against damming the valley, considered by some to rival the beauty of Yosemite Valley itself. The people of San Francisco sought to dam the valley to ensure a stable water supply to their city. You also had farmers along the river who wanted to both control, but also develop the river for agricultural purposes. Eventually, the people of San Francisco, with the support of President Woodrow Wilson, won passage of a congressional bill to dam the valley in 1913. So now that we have a bit of context, let's look at Roosevelt and his effect on conservation. TR, an outdoorsman, was appalled at the destruction of timber and mineral resources in some of the nation's forests. Gifford Pinchot, head of the Federal Division of Forestry, made, a, uh, made significant contributions before Teddy became president. Roosevelt aroused public opinion vis-a-vis -vis conservation. He wanted what he called a wise use policy of resources, not just preservation, a position held by the naturalist John Muir. The idea here was to set aside an expanse of federal land to use for recreation, sustain yield logging, watershed protection, and stock grazing. Out of this, we get the New Lands Reclamation Act of 1902. The federal government was authorized to collect money from the sale of public lands in western states and to use those funds for the development of irrigation projects. Settlers would repay the cost of reclamation by building successful farms. Dams were constructed on virtually every major western river in subsequent decades, totaling in the dozens. However, critics argue that the dams destroyed natural river habitats. Another aspect of TR's conservation was his push to save the forests. Roosevelt set aside 125 million acres of forests in Federal Reserves. This constituted three times as much as his three predecessors combined. Millions of acres of coal deposits and water resources useful for irrigation and power were also earmarked by the government. In my estimation, and on this I probably differ from my libertarian anarchist fellow travelers, but in my opinion, this was a great thing. Sadly, Roosevelt didn't do more. For example, Glen Canyon on the Colorado should have been protected. Instead, it would be flooded in the 1960s, and while it does provide water for states such as Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona, it is my belief that the damage it has caused downstream to the Grand Canyon is not worth it. But there you go, that's just my opinion. In 1904, Roosevelt was elected to office for his own four-year term. Remember, he came to the office of president because he was the vice president when William McKinley was assassinated in September of 1901. 
Anyway, in the 1904 election, Roosevelt wins a large electoral victory over the Democratic nominee, Alton B. Parker. Yeah, Alton B. Parker. Nobody remembers him. Eugene Debs ran as the socialist candidate. Actually, I think more people remember Eugene Debs than Alton B. Parker. But anyways, um, the Prohibition Party also ran a candidate. Interestingly, T.R. made himself a lame duck president by announcing after his election he would not run for a third term. Finally, we need to talk about the Panic of 1907. Wall Street suffered a short but brutal panic in 1907. Runs on banks, suicides, criminal indictments uh, against speculators, all of this stuff occurred. Business leaders assailed Roosevelt for causing the panic due to his anti-business tactics and called the financial setback the Roosevelt Panic. TR felt wounded by the criticism, and he accused Wall Street of engineering the panic. He then embarked on a second wave of trust-busting. Reform now became even more acceptable. There was a group of so-called insurgent Republicans and Democrats who took on the, quote, old guard with their Gilded Age views. The results? The panic demonstrated, in the minds of some at least, the need for an elastic money supply. I'd say it cemented the idea in the minds of the powers that be. During the panic, so the story goes, banks were unable to increase the volume of currency in circulation to stem the tide of the downturn. Those with money were reluctant to loan money to fellow banks. This apparent weakness paved the way for the creation of the modern Federal Reserve System in 1913. Since then, the dollar is estimated to have lost approximately 96% of its value. Just think about that. 96% of its value. That means that today's dollar would be worth about 4 cents 107 years ago, or have the buying power of 4 pennies 100 years ago. That's not a very good track record if you ask me. Finally, labor and local reformers gained important middle-class allies. Roosevelt began incorporating some of the ideas of William Jennings Bryan. Heck, in less than a decade, you'd have the creation of the Federal Reserve and the beginning of 100-plus years of inflationary policies. Bryan would have been thrilled. Progressives as a whole finally embraced reforms put forward by reformers, socialists, the populists, the Knights of Labor, the Farmers' Alliances, and the Greenback Labor Party. Okay, well, that's it for today. Uh, next time, we will continue on with our discussion of the progressive movement, and we'll have a look at William Howard Taft. Until next time, good day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. Thank you.